The two great sacred seasons on the Christian calendar are Easter and Christmas. The solemnity of Good Friday, followed by the victory of Resurrection Sunday on the one hand, and then the jubilant, exuberant joy of the incarnation on the other hand, Easter and Christmas. The fact that Christmas comes at the end of the calendar year, however, means that a holiday spirit can kind of keep going for a while. It can continue for those enjoying a little extra free time. If you're a student, you have a couple of weeks to do just three things. Eat, sleep, and eat. If you, if you are employed, you typically have a, a couple of extra days to yourself to do whatever you want. In a way, it's a bit like the age of grace in which we live. We're living in the age of grace. The word means unmerited favor, undeserved. And for a span of time determined by God, even those who neglect or reject him are able to freely live, move, and have their being. But just like Christmas holidays, holidays come to an end, so shall the opportunity to live on earth with our back to God, apart from God, doing what seems right in our own eyes. A day is coming that will mark the end of the age of grace when all those who had no room in the inn of their hearts for a savior. They will be eternally separated from God. Eternally lost, forever conscious, but with no peace, no joy, isolated, anxious. In today's passage, Jesus issues this sober warning in order to wake up those who are spiritually dead and strengthen the living. We pick it up in verse 24 of Matthew 13. He, Jesus, presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the servants of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may up, 
root up the wheat with them. Allow them both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, because Jesus gives a commentary on these particular verses, um, you don't have to hear from me, my attempt to explain it. Let's go to verse 37. We'll come back and get the other parables. But right now, let's hear what he has to say. Verse 37, and he answered and said, because the disciples want to know what this means. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The son of man is a messianic title that Jesus owned. It's one of his favorite titles. The seed, uh, the sower, is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Some sober words. If I was doing topical teaching, I probably would skip this part. <laughs> but I am constrained to teach the whole counsel of God. So here we are. Jesus concludes with an admonition. He who has ears, that is, he who is willing to consider the truth with an open mind, let him hear. In other words, let him take it to heart. Because there's no other way to be gathered into the Lord's barn for safekeeping except through being adopted into his kingdom, his forever family, becoming sons and daughters of the kingdom. In, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, it says that those who open their hearts to him and receive him as Lord and Savior, they are granted the right to become children of God. In this chapter, the good seed of God's word has been uh, able to birth children of God, but among them the devil has sown tares, which Jesus calls sons of the evil one. In their early stages of development, it's almost impossible to distinguish between a head of tear, known today by the name darnel, and a head of wheat. They look almost identical in their early stages. It's only after the stalks have grown that the gray slate of the poisonous tear 
can be clearly distinguished from the amber waves of grain. But by that time, the roots have already entwined. And to pull up the tear would risk damage to the wheat. So the sower, and who is the sower? Jesus, in this parable. The sower says in verse 30, to his servants, his angels, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there are stumbling blocks, he says, in his kingdom. Those who come stealthily into the body of Christ with their aberrant theology, their aberrant doctrines. Some like the cults of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, who deny Jesus Christ, his deity. To the Mormons, he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. To the Jehovah's Witnesses, he is the archangel Michael. But if we just reasonable, rational for a moment, how could another creator, created being ever die for the sins of the world? We would have no confidence in that. There would be no resurrection. It is only the holy offspring who always was, is, and will always be who could bear in his body our sin upon the cross. But they deny him, his deity. And they try to lure two Christians to their side with special social programs or extra-biblical elitism where they say to us nominal Christians in their eyes, we have better light than you have. God has so ordained to give us more truth than you have. It's it's not in the Bible, but it's, you know, it's extra biblical. But we are the A-team. You want to be a part of the A-team, you join our team. It's kind of a telltale sign of a cult. Then there are the legalists, like the Pharisees before them. They try to suck the joy out of believers by making them work their way to heaven. It's not enough that Christ died for our sins. You got to work for it. It's a damnable doctrine. It diminishes what Christ has accomplished. If you could work for it, there would be no need for Calvary. Any doctrine that combines grace and works is a stumbling block in his kingdom. Verse 41. It exalts man while contradicting the clear teaching of Scripture. 
such as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, remember, is undeserved favor of God. Unmerited. You can't earn it. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. And that should tell you that that's the problem with all other man-made religions. You can boast in it because you added your two cents to this transaction. You say, no, you can't do it. It's not what the Bible teaches. I would exhort sons and daughters of the kingdom, those who have put the full weight of their confidence in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross for their right standing with God. I would tell true sons and daughters of the kingdom not to attend any church that denies Christ, his deity. For we're reminded in the word of God that we have no fellowship with those who walk in darkness. But when such persons invade our space? I would say, let's, let's shine our light before them. And that's what he says. We, we shine like the sun in this dark place. Jesus said we're the light of the world because we have his truth and his spirit. Can't worship him correctly without worshiping him in truth and in, and in the spirit. Spurgeon writes, magistrates and churches may remove the openly wicked from their society. The outwardly good who are inwardly worthless, they must leave. For the judging of hearts is beyond their sphere. Above their pay grade, we might say, today. I would hope if someone has come into the church with, with some aberrant or heretical doctrine, but is behaving themselves, is trying to look like a Christian, not distracting others. Let's let the word of God and the spirit of God have its way on them. And maybe we can lovingly help to just Free them from the tyranny of self or the bondage of legalism. Jesus goes on to share two more parables with the same message. That's where they're lumped in today's message. It's underscoring, of course, how important this warning is in Scripture. Verse 31. Okay, we're backing up a little. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all of the seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its, its branches. The mustard seed was the smallest garden seed indigenous to the Middle East. And therefore, it was used 
to express something that was extremely small. That's what Jesus is doing here. The church, you could say, is anybody following the chosen, by the way? (laughs) That group of knuckleheads, that's how we began. Very small. Handful, a handful of fishermen, and we throw in a zealot and and a tax collector. That's it. That's ground zero. Talk about a mustard seed in the world. But what does it become? It's the dominant faith on the planet today. Not even Islam, which is growing very fast, not because people are coming to faith, but because they're having a lot of babies. There's a population explosion going on there. But currently, Christianity remains the largest of the garden plants among world religions with many branches, many denominations. But with the growth has come birds. Do you remember, if you were with us last week, what the birds represented? In the parable of the sower and the different soils that he scattered the seed on. In verse 19, Jesus calls them, the birds, the evil one who snatches away the word that has been sown in the hearts of the unbelieving. Because the hearts of the unbelieving is like hard pan. Because that's the seed that fell along the footpath. Have you ever tried to dig where people uh, have walking, walked back and forth for a while? Your shovel's not going to cut it, man. You need a pickaxe. And the seed doesn't have a chance to germinate in the hearts of these unbelieving so that the birds can come. It's easy pickings. So the birds are equated, equated with the evil one. And just as the tares represent what Jesus referred to as the sons of the evil one in verse 38, so the birds in among the mustard tree warn us of counterfeit Christians with false doctrines that will only foul the church. Right? When I read here, that such corrupt influences are comfortably nesting in the branches of Christendom. I mean, what do you think of? They're here. Within the branches of Christendom, we see these corrupt influences comfortably nesting. I'll tell you what I think of. How some churches are performing same-sex weddings doing scriptural gymnastics to try to justify what has become very popular. And ordaining, practicing homosexuals to their clergy. Now, just saying this, I know some people, if we had you hooked up to a heart monitor, you might see a little spike there. 
Because this is politically incorrect to the 10th degree. It's interesting, I, I just was informed that, that my doctor, where I have my annual wellness checkup, uh, is leaving after all these years. And uh, I was, there was a list of other physicians that are accepting patients. And a bunch of them, most of them had a little asterisk by their name. And if you look at it, it says, these are those that are, are affirming the gay lifestyle. And, and uh, the, the transsexual lifestyle. Um, there are only two that didn't have the asterisk. Now, my physician was himself gay, and I loved hanging with him and, and just kind of just in conversation, sharing my life as a believer. No judgment. God loves him. I love him. And I would have happily taken one of them with an asterisk. But I chose to go with one of the brave physicians that was willing not to bow down to the influence, the prevailing influence in the world. I'm sure it probably cost them some patience. Not to have that asterisk added to their name. The Bible clearly teaches that such behavior as homosexuality and the whole transsexual movement, such behavior is contrary to God's express purposes. And any attempt to replicate natural intercourse unnaturally violates God's intent. Let me say that again. Any attempt to replicate intercourse, sexual intercourse, violates God's intent. I mean, just a, just a rudimentary understanding of biology will tell you that the biological male body was made for the biological female body, and, and to use them in any other way violates God's intent. It's the design, it's very clear. And that's never going to change. No matter how popular opinion vacillates. I need to mention right here that, that same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria is not a sin. Living in a fallen world, we are tempted in many ways that violate God's in, uh, intent. We all fall short of the glory of God. I do every day. That's why I will never judge someone else. The word of God will judge and the Holy Spirit will bring conviction. Now, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. 
that the Lord will help us to overcome temptation and live in a manner that glorifies him. We'll never do it perfectly this side of heaven until we shed these mortal coils and take up our new bodies, glorified bodies. We will struggle with the flesh. Same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, that is not sin. We have a, a pamphlet available at the info booth called Understanding Homosexuality. It looks like this. It's by Alan Schlemann of Stand to Reason ministries. The reason I like this so much is one, it's not a lot of pages, but also his intent in writing this book is to give understanding to the Christian so that we will be able to intelligently and compassionately reach out to those who are struggling in these ways. You know, there are a lot of people with unwanted same-sex attraction. And we can, we can help and we can love them. In fact, I do have a standing offer to anyone that is struggling with gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction. I will take you to lunch. It's a free lunch or to coffee. Uh, and I would love just to get to know you. I want to hear your story. Don't have to talk about anything in the Bible. Just would like to connect with you. Be your friend if you let me. So that's a standing invitation. You can, you can contact me uh, here, info at cceside.com, and I will, I will, I'll put that together. Chapter thirteen. We're still there. Verse thirty-three. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden from the foundation of the world. Okay, this is the third parable now in a row that Jesus used to reveal the same thing. This is the same thing about the kingdom of heaven that had not been fully disclosed in the Old Testament. Namely, that within the flock of God, there is hidden the corrupting influence of the evil one. Just as poisonous tares threaten the growth of the wheat and the birds snatch up the good seed and foul the branches of the mustard tree, the decaying process of leaven permeates the whole batch of dough. Leaven is that chemical agent that spawns fermentation. That's what it does. And if 
you are a baker, you appreciate that because it allows the dough to rise and puts air pockets in, it, in the body of the bread. And though it's necessary to get the dough to rise, it, its putrefying nature made it a synonym for sin because of the way that it permeates like leaven. Jesus said that he is the bread from heaven. That's a term he used to identify himself. He also said, I'm the bread of life. If he's the bread of life, what does that make us? We are his earthly loaf. Right? We are the body of Christ, the visible body of Christ. We are that earthly loaf. And the leaven of the evil one, the corrupting influence of the devil, has been kneaded in. Not by God, but by the evil one, by the devil. And it exists hidden. The rotting effect of false doctrine reminds me of the saying, old fishermen never die. They just smell that way. <laughs> Which clearly describes false Christianity. It never dies. It permeates quickly, thoroughly, never dies. But it does smell that way. For the believer, this is a sober warning to wake up and smell the leaven. Because it says in verse 25, it was while men were asleep that the enemy came in and was able to infiltrate. We do that by staying in his word. And I know if you're from another church where every Sunday it was a topical message, uh, the verse-by-verse -verse teaching can, be see can seem a little less exciting, doesn't have the pizzazz of a, of a topical message. But as I said earlier, it is, it is your safeguard that I'm constrained to teach line upon line, to get the whole counsel of God, so that we know what's going on around us and can be prepared can be on guard, on alert. We stay awake by staying in his word, by in staying in prayer, in communion with God, and staying in fellowship, communion with each other, and, and serving within the body of Christ. Because each one has been gifted in a certain way to come and to be employed for the health of the whole body. So yeah, if all of that's going on, it will serve to your benefit, keep you from falling asleep and allowing the enemy to infiltrate. For the unbeliever, it is a sober warning that the end of the era of grace is coming. Again, we're living in it right now, but the end is coming. A day is fixed when, verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness 
Those that are a law unto themselves, they just follow their own hearts and do what seems right into their own eyes. They will be removed and cast into the furnace of fire. And in that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, of course, speaks of sorrow. But I believe the gnashing of teeth refers more to indignation. In Acts chapter 7, you, if you've read it, you may remember how Stephen became the first martyr of the church while witnessing before uh, the, the Jewish high court. He pointed out to them that they have a history of resisting the Holy Spirit until, at last, they've murdered their own Messiah. This was news that didn't go down so well. And at that point, they, it says they began gnashing their teeth at him before taking him out and stoning him to death. And just as this high court, the Sanhedrin, gnashed their teeth in judgment at Stephen, I believe those who refuse God's way of salvation will gnash their teeth at him. When they experience the judgment, their willful rebellion has wrought. You think there'd be some sense of remorse. Some anguish over their sin that doomed them. But that's not what we read here. There are no apologies. No owning up to their folly. Only an angry fist waving in the face of God as if they're victims and not volunteers. We love to cast ourselves as victims when we suffer any hardship. When Kim and I were about to return from a visit several years ago uh, to Vancouver Island in British Columbia, um, the captain came over the loudspeaker several times and warned us about the Strait of Juan de Fuca, that it was extremely turbulent. But they had decided that they needed to get this group of people back to Seattle. So he said, you can pick up a tablet of Dramamine, which will curve your nausea for 25 cents. Canadian, which means they were virtually giving it away, practically, it was almost giving it away. And then we hit the straits. Most people didn't go to get it. Most people just, you know, figured that they would just gut it out. And then everything that was in their gut ended up on the deck, uh, the inside deck of the floor. And in fact, you just, they were throwing up right and left. It was so, Kim and I were toward the back of this room where the, where the restrooms were, and the restroom, the whole vomit completely covered the floor. Once we got to Seattle and disembarked, there was a restroom there, and 
I was using that, and a a respectable-looking man started cursing the captain. You know why? For not warning them. (laughs) Friends, the grace of God is even less than 25 cents Canadian. It's absolutely free. It's the only way it works. But Jesus has warned us that the day is coming when it will no longer be available. You'll have gone too far, past the point of no return. And like Christmas holidays, that age of grace will come to an end. That's the sober reality that Jesus is is trying to communicate. Act now, if you haven't already, before it's too late. You don't know when that day will come. And we believe that it's very near. Could be today. You don't have tomorrow promised. Bow the knee today and be counted among the righteous, verse 43, those who have a right standing with their creator through faith in Jesus Christ, that we would be counted among the righteous who will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. I mean, don't put up your hand, but I mean, isn't that what we want? Jesus is the light of the world. And then he turned to his disciples and says, you were the light of the world. If anyone's going to shine in this present darkness, it's the church. That's what we want. Amen? Amen. Let's just bow our heads for a moment and, and go to God and respond to this message. If you've If you've never opened your heart to Christ, I want to, it would be just a privilege to introduce you to him. And I'd just like to lead you in a prayer. Or if you've just been kind of on the periphery, really with no sense of, of, power in your life over some besetting sin. I want to pray with you that God would set you free today. He has the power to do it. So both groups, just enter in. And you can do this in the quiet of your heart, but agree with me and say in your heart, God, thank you for sending Christ to pay the penalty of my sin, which is separation forever and ever from a holy God. I recognize I cannot in my own goodness stand in your presence. Your eye is too pure to even consider or look upon evil. Thank you for dying in my place. And for my brothers and sisters who are struggling 
with a besetting sin. Lord, we come to you. And we lay that sin before you, whatever it is. Anything that causes us to trust more in ourselves than in you. And to seek relief outside of a relationship with the living God. We just, we, we repent of that right now. We lay it down. And we say, God, be my all and all and my all in all. Fill me with your presence, Lord. Be the glory and lifter of my head today and every day. That I might shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name.